Welcome to the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founding editor of the podcast. Today we are discussing biologics and in particular platelet-rich plasma. I'm excited to welcome back to the podcast a familiar voice to many listeners, one of our prior hosts and a good friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Andrew Sheehan, an active duty Air Force sports medicine specialist from the San Antonio Military Medical Center. Dr. Sheehan is an avid researcher, resident educator, associate editor for the Arthroscopy Journal, and an active member in ANA. Dr. Sheehan was the lead author on the recent infographic titled Platelet-Rich Plasma, Fundamentals and Clinical Applications, which was published in the September 2021 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include Adam Ons and James Bradley. Andy, congratulations on your work and welcome back to the podcast. Chris, thanks for having me. It's fun to be back here in the hot seat. and I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, acknowledge the uh, the hard work and mentorship of uh, the other two my other two co-authors, uh, Dr. Ans and Dr. Bradley. Uh, it's been really great getting to know the both of these two gentlemen over the last handful of years, and, and both of them had a, have had a substantial impact and influence in the way that I think about orthobiologics and the way that I've been able to implement them into my practice thus far. And so this was a a fun thing to get to. I mean, all these these infographics are always fun to do. We've done a handful of them, but uh, this one was was particularly fun and I, and I hope illuminating for the uh, Arthroscopy Journal uh, readers. Well, I have to say I'm excited to have you back. It was a privilege to have you as a host for so long when we started this project and we're honored to have you back as a guest again. So I'm excited to discuss this in particular with you because I think as with almost all practicing sports medicine surgeons, there isn't a clinic now where I don't discuss biologics of some form or another with my patients. On that note, I want to dive right in, and I think biologics can be a little bit intimidating or confusing for some because speaking the language is very important, and it's sort of got a a vocabulary all of its own. I'm hoping you can demystify that for all of us today. Can you just start by covering the basics for us from a 30,000-foot view, discussing biologics in general, what we even mean when we say the term biologics? and then what PRP is and where it falls into that field? Yeah, so I think that's a great way to get started. And I think it, it's really important at the outset here for us to emphasize the importance of the, the language and the vocabulary that we're using. You know, regrettably, there's so much bad information out there. And the, in many respects, the way in which that orthobiologics have been discussed in the lay press, within the uh, peer-reviewed literature, by orthopedic surgeons and non-orthopedic surgeons has created a suboptimal situation. I think it's diminished the credibility of, of the innovation and the promise of orthobiologics, and also, regrettably, it's it's hampered uh, research progress. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit that, about that particular aspect um, as we get into our conversation here. But the way that I think about orthobiologics is a is something is a concept that Dr. Bradley had introduced, and I've heard him lecture on many times. It's a it's a cellular treatment hierarchy, and so if you think about if you close your eyes and you're thinking about you know a, a diagram, you have your cellular treatment hierarchies kind of the top, and then it splits off. And then on the left, you have platelet-rich plasma. Um, there's two main types of platelet-rich plasma. There's the leukocyte-enriched platelet-rich plasma, and there's leukocyte-poor platelet-rich plasma, and then the other branch point is the stem cells or the medicinal signaling cells. And I've heard Dr. Arnie Kaplan talk about whether or not it's appropriate to be calling them 
mesenchymal stem cells or medicinal signaling cells. So we'll just for the rest of this conversation just just say MSCs. But there's there's autogenic and allogenic MSCs. I think that most of what it is that orthopedic surgeons are, are talking about, reading about, and implementing or trying to implement in their process are the autologous point of care or expanded uh, MSCs, and those have a couple different sources. They can come from either marrow, commonly harvested from the iliac crest, um, but also Gus Mazaka and his group have uh, recently published in a lot of uh, compelling literature to suggest that it can be uh, harvested from the proximal humerus, which is obviously advantageous and particularly convenient, considering that a uh, very commonly used application of MSCs would be to augment rotator cuff repairs. And then uh, adipose tissue being the other main source of autologous uh, MSCs, um, either abdominal uh, adipose tissue that's been described similar to what's used in a, a liposuction harvest or uh, harvesting MSCs from the infrapatellar fat pad. Uh, Dr. Jason Dragu has, has published quite a bit and has demonstrated that the infrapatellar fat pad can be a viable source of these adipose-derived MSCs. And so that's kind of, that's, that's the overview. That's the way that I think about it. And I think that that's a 30,000 foot perspective that hopefully is easy for most of the listeners to get their, their minds around. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic summary. You're obviously quite well versed in the language. And I think you demystified it a fair amount for us and clarified it, which I appreciate. So focusing on this specific infographic, we talk about PRP and its biologic activity with respect to two main areas of interest. It's anti-inflammatory effects for conditions such as osteoarthritis and its healing potential with respect to tendinopathies or tendon injuries or even repairs. Can you review for us the basics of how both of those actually work? Sure. And so you actually, you did, you did a lot of the work for me with the way that you put the question together. Uh, but I think you're framing it nicely. And there's really a a dual mechanism of action here um, when we're talking about platelet-rich plasma. Um, and it pertains, again, to accelerating or augmenting the capacity of the target tissues to heal. And then it's also diminishing inflammation or diminishing or ameliorating a deleterious uh, immune response. And so this can be done, this is done in a couple different ways, but from a big picture perspective, PRP, um, we're pretty confident promotes collagen uh, matrix generation uh, while decreasing pro-inflammatory cytokines, IL-1, IL-1 uh, receptor uh, agonists, IL-6-8, uh, MMPs, um, all of these molecules that are in the milieu that we know are responsible for inflammation and matrix degeneration. Uh, and then another component of the PRP that we talk about in the infographic itself is the release of the alpha granules, which we know are these quanta of, of, of biologically active uh, molecules. Um, and I, I like to think of the alpha gr uh, granules as, as the, the engines that drive the uh, secretion of, of growth factors. VEGF, TGF beta are, are all things that we think are, are promoted by the, uh, the presence of these alpha granules at the point, of, the point of injury or the point at which we're trying to affect a biologic process. So specifically talking about PRP, I was hoping you could dial in on the specifics of the classification, the PAW or PAW classification, as you refer to in your infographic, just so we can all speak the language and understand what those three variables are and why they're important. 
Yeah. So this was something that was published, I think, in 2012. Uh, Jeff DeLong was the lead author on this. And Dr. Bradley's got a great slide in one of his talks where this, this paw classification was actually dreamt up on the back of a styrofoam cup at a cookout or something like that. So it was, it was serendipitous, but it's, it's really helpful. And there's a number of different ways to talk about PRP. And so we'll go through the PAW. The P stands for the number of platelets, the platelet concentration. Uh, the A is the activation method. And the W is the, the, the presence or absence of, of the white blood cells. Now, the PAW has been implemented, embraced, uh, and I'd say if I had to characterize it, probably a limited fashion over the last decade or so. But I think what's, what's more important here, and, and getting back to what I said earlier about language and the importance of the vocabulary that we're using, is, is that however you're thinking about biologics, and in this case PRP, and when you're reading it, you're reading it with a particular attention to the different factors that we know are so important the leukocyte concentration, the platelet concentration, and understanding that it's very easy to find yourself in a circumstance in which, regrettably, authors or investigators are comparing apples to oranges and then concluding that there's no difference. And we've talked about the problems and the pitfalls of, of type 2 error in general, but it's it's really, really important that in 2020 now is that we're reading the literature with a very close, very exacting, and very specific eye and understanding that all of these different things matter. And if we're really interested in arriving at the truth so that we can advance the state of the art and ultimately take the best care of our patients that we can, is that we're we're acknowledging that each and every one of these variables is important. And again, we're, we're doing everything we can to put ourselves in a position in which we're comparing apples to apples in a clinical setting and a research setting in those respects. Yeah, I appreciate your perspective. I think, you know, being an associate editor for the journal, you get to see so much literature and review it with such a skilled eye that I think your perspective on this topic is, is valid and, and very timely. Um, I think that's a great segue into my next question, which I think maybe we can help kind of discuss that bench to clinic transition of research to application. And if you could review for us the current clinical applications for PRP and what evidence there is to support those uses. Sure. So I think that certainly there is a ponderance of clinical evidence that would suggest that both the non-operative and operative treatment of rotator cuff tendonitis, tendinosis, and tear, either partial or complete tear, can be affected, can be improved as far as the clinical trajectory uh, of the patients go if PRP is, is added to a treatment regimen. You know, I was just, it was funny, I was just talking to a couple colleagues of mine and we were discussing the AOS CPGs on PRP, which are not particularly uh, hospitable. But when you go back and you look, you can say that well, those were published, I think, in about 2019 and think about the research that goes into it. And so much has been published since then. We've written a couple editorial commentaries on this this issue or this uh, application of PRP. And so I think that there continues to be a growing body of evidence that would suggest that PRP, particularly in the setting of augmenting rotator cuff repairs, is particularly efficacious in enhancing healing rates, which, as we know, particularly in the situation and circumstance of all the younger patients that have a very strong preference for strength restoration, that a healed repair is a stronger repair. And so I'm a very big believer in the efficacy of, of platelet-rich plasma. 
in the operative and non-operative treatment of rotator cuff pathology. The other issue that I think is worth thinking about is, is, is everything that's come out and has been published within the last two to three years or so about the deleterious effects of a corticosteroid within a temporal proximity uh, to a surgical intervention. And so if we have a, a preponderance of clinical data that is suggesting that PRP is as good or better or as good as a corticosteroid injection, but obviously does not have the deleterious effects, and we can talk about what some of the downsides of PRP use in the clinic are, then I think it becomes more and more of a no-brainer, so to speak, as more and more of those types of studies are published. I hinted at it, but knee osteoarthritis is also a very promising application for PRP and has been shown to be as efficacious as corticosteroids and hyaluronic acid or visco supplementation. And then uh, Dr. Bradley has shown that PRP uh, in the setting of uh, uh, hamstring injuries and the non-operative management of hamstring injuries, partial hamstring tears, have shown a lot of promise in returning high-level elite athletes to return to sport uh, quicker and accelerating their recovery, which when you're talking about elite athletes, you know, if you can accelerate return to sport by a matter of six days, that's a big deal. And then the other historical issues, or excuse me, the historical applications of PRP that I think there's compelling data for the lateral epicondylitis, that's been shown to be particularly efficacious. And so I think that we, and the, the infographic gets at that, I think it provides a nice overview of schematically of the areas that I think that the biologics and the PRP are, are worth uh, people paying attention to. Yeah, I agree. I think the infographic has a very nice visual layout of those things, which obviously, as we know, is the point of the infographic. Now, for those who may not have biologics as a part of their practice currently, but are looking to incorporate them, could you review some of the practical aspects of what's needed and how one might go about starting to use PRP, either in the clinic or the operating room setting? Sure. And I'll, I'll, I'll speak to, to my practice uh, specifically. I'm uh, clinically active in a military treatment facility, so I acknowledge that uh, a lot of the uh, payer-related issues that my civilian counterparts have to deal with and, and circumnavigate um, are not exactly applicable. And so uh, it's been um, to the credit of our leadership here at the San Antonio Military Medical Center um, have been very hospitable to uh, procuring PRP uh, machines that are housed in both our clinic and our operating rooms. Um, and so from a logistical standpoint, um, you know, I've certainly been a part of uh, clinical models in which uh, PRP injections can be integrated into a otherwise normal uh, clinical routine. Um, we've found here locally that it makes sense to set aside some time. Usually we have a, a, a PRP clinic um, that we'll do um, a half day every other week. And so we'll have uh, providers that are adept with ultrasound doing um, ultrasound glenohumeral joint injections with platelet plasma. The high-level evidence I acknowledge is, is, is lacking in that respect, but you know, we are extrapolating what we've seen in the knee, and we're actually getting ready to study that. But then we've also got providers doing uh, subacromial PRP injections for rotator cuff tendinopathy, partial thickness rotator cuff tears that are being treated non-operatively, and then intraarticular knee injections, which 
which we're doing, you know, without ultrasound, you can certainly be using ultrasound. We we generally uh, aren't using ultrasound as a as an adjunct in that respect. And then in the operating room, I use PRP regularly um, at the end of every rotator cuff repair. Um, so we've got a machine in the room. Uh, we'll draw uh, the requisite amount of blood before the case gets started, spin it while we're fixing our rotator cuff, and then have it ready to go at the end of the case. I will put the spinal needle in percutaneously into the repair site. I will close my arthroscopy portals after I've evacuated the arthroscopic fluid from the subacromial space, and then I'll inject the PRP at the end, which I think is, is really important, and it, it goes to not just what the formulation of the PRP is, but specifically with respect to rotator cuff tears, it's it's how you do it. You put it at the repair site. You put it under direct visualization. You're not just shooting in the subacromial space when you got a whole bunch of arthroscopic fluid in there. And so that's how we've been approaching it here. And I think we've had really good success both in terms of the implementation and I think that the patients uh, very much enjoy the and appreciate uh, the access to um, a really, really exciting um, innovation within our subspecialty focus area. Yeah, I appreciate those thoughts and tips from your own practice. This might be a slightly redundant question, but I was wondering if you could just share with us your experience with the use of it clinically, at least in terms of patient response and any clinical pearls or tips or lesson learned along the way with respect to how patients respond to it and how you've adjusted either your kind of timing of using it, algorithms on when to do it, or any adjustments to your rehab protocols or anything like that? Yeah, so with respect to um, rotator cuff repair, I'm a big believer in, like I mentioned, the mechanism of action with respect to what it's doing at the repair site and, and what it does to help reconstitute the emphasis. But I also think it has a very powerful analgesic effect. And that's anecdotally what I've what I what I've appreciated here is is I think that there there is a substantial analgesic benefit that comes along uh, with that. In addition to everything else that we're doing from a multimodal standpoint and limiting the amount of of narcotics our patients are are dosing perioperatively, and then from a non-operative standpoint, you know I think that uh, I think that there's there's uh, several good uh, clinical studies that would suggest that if you're treating Rotator cuff tendon pathology non-operatively, patients can oftentimes benefit from a series of uh, several PRP injections, either two or three spaced between, I'd say, between 10 and 14 days apart. So there's a logistical issue there, but at the same time, and it's not an exact comparison, but, but patients are, ac- are you know, accustomed to coming back in for their series of, of hyaluronic acid injections and things like that, and the other FISCO supplementations that require a series of injections. So... I found that that hasn't been uh, a very uh, tall order, or tough sell, um, and I think that we've 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 seen good results here, and so we're excited about what we've been doing and what we're going to continue to do. So, taking a step back from some of the more kind of tactical or or logistical aspects of PRP, and maybe s- just touching on some philosophical question, what do you think are some of the most important unanswered questions? with respect to biologics or PRP and specifically, or what do you see as the most important next step for advancing this field? So I, I think it's an excellent question, and I, I think there's two main areas that, that at least I'm interested in and, and what our research group is, has been looking into. And the first one is the, 
the way in which that uh, bioinductive scaffolds can act as reservoirs for orthobiologics. And so we've we've talked about and we've and we've learned a lot within the last several years about and I mentioned this earlier about how important it is as far as how you go about delivering the biologic therapy in question. And so as more and more energy and enthusiasm builds centered around bioinductive scaffolds, rotator cuff repair, the treatment of tendinopathies, can we be creating a or uh, realizing a synergy between these scaffolds and the and the biologic that we're that we're talking about? Can we be engineering these scaffolds in a way to provide a robust augmentation to the tissue that we are repairing or looking to heal, but then also having these scaffolds be constituted and or manufactured in a way in which they can hold on and potentially be eluding these biologic molecules and, and, and materials in a way that has a, uh, in, a, in a way that makes sense kinetically. Um, the second uh, main area of, of interest for me personally uh, was actually something that was, was catalyzed by uh, Adam Anz's work, um, incidentally, in a paper that was published in Arthroscopy Journal in 2019, and we, he and I did a podcast on it, but is the, the, the uh, variability that individuals will demonstrate in uh, the composition of their point-of-care blood products. And more specifically, um, what does an acute episode of exercise do 30 minutes prior to or an hour or two hours prior to a harvest? And so we've just, in my mind, scratched the surface in terms of person-to-person variability, but also to variability amongst or specific to individuals. And so, you know, at this point, some of the leader, the, the, the listeners are probably rolling their eyes saying that there's just, there's too much variability. And in, in certain respects, that's the case. But I think that we owe it to ourselves as, as clinicians and clinician scientists to be trying to attack these these avenues or these areas of variability, because I think that's ultimately that's that's what's going to lead us to finding the the correct formulation, the correct delivery method, uh, the correct preparation, all of these things that go into this. And so I don't I, I look at these all of this variability as something that's exciting, and it's going to be a an area for so much investigation and innovation for for years to come. Yeah, I share your enthusiasm. I think it's exciting too. Um, I remember reviewing that podcast about two years ago, and I, I thought it was a fascinating concept of the point of care harvest and what variables can be affected. And I agree, there's a ton of variables. And as you said, you can either look at that as a challenge and a barrier, or you can look at it as an opportunity. And uh, you know, I, I applaud folks like yourself who continue to push the envelope and investigate this sort of stuff. Fantastic discussion. Do you have any other closing thoughts or comments before we conclude? Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm so appreciative of the opportunity to get back on the podcast. And and this has been a, a great conversation. You know, I think it's just, it's really, really important. You know, I, I, I opened up lamenting the fact that there's been so much bad information out there. And regrettably, you know, it, some of it has come from, from uh, you know, individuals in our circles. And so I would just, I would encourage our listeners and and all the investigators out there when, you know, we're thinking about, you know, biologics and when we're talking about biologics is that we're, we're precise with the language that we're using. We're honest with respect to our outcomes and our findings. Um, and we're measured in our adoption. 
and I think that if if all of us are approaching biologics using that framework, I think then that's going to maximize the likelihood of again of us proceeding towards innovating in a, in a, in a responsible way, in a way that doesn't leave the science vulnerable to the biases and to all the pitfalls that we've discussed. And then I think it all then ultimately really solidifies our position as orthopedic surgeons as the experts in this particular musculoskeletal space. I think we owe that to ourselves and we owe that to our patients. Absolutely. Andy, I want to congratulate you and your co-authors again on this important work and thank you for sharing your time and your thoughts with all of us today. Thanks so much, Chris. Dr. Sheehan's infographic titled Platelet-Rich Plasma, Fundamentals and Clinical Applications can be found in the September 2021 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal, which is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in the podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.